0: from time to time, I've had people ask me (coughs) why we bother to study the Old Testament. And a lot of times, I think we we tend to neglect a study of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it's been bad enough that uh, once, it's been back some time ago, I was using an Old Testament passage as the, the springboard into the lesson and uh, I had somebody, they were a member of a denomination that were visiting, and they came up after services and said something about it. They said, well, I thought you people didn't believe in the Old Testament. And I said, what? They said, yeah, I've heard that all my life. The Church of Christ doesn't believe in the Old Testament. I said, well, of course we do. we believe everything God said. said. We're not under the Old Testament as far as justifying uh, our practices or anything like that. But yeah, we believe every word of it. And it, it was a surprise to them. But I've had members of the Lord's Church ask me sometimes when, when we were studying the Old Testament, I said, well, why do we do that? Why are we even studying this? We're not under the old law anymore. We don't need to study this. And I said, true. We're, we're under New Testament law but we still need to study the Old Testament. Well, why do we do it? And my, my stock answer has been because the New Testament tells us to. And I, I've never failed to get basically the same remark. It does? Yeah, it does. In First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, at the beginning of the chapter, the Apostle Paul goes through uh, a lot of things That the Israelites were guilty of. In verse 6, he says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now in verse 11, he says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 6, these things became our examples, Verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying there is he's saying, look, if you are capable of learning from someone else's mistakes, then when you study the Old Testament, you can find people that made just about any mistake you can think of, and you should be able to learn a lesson from that. And it's one of those things, you you do, you find all kinds of things in the Old Testament that people did, and it's a warning. You know, as, as Paul says here, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if it happened to them, it could happen to us. We need to be careful. So if you're capable of learning from someone else's mistakes, you can learn something very important from the Old Testament, and then in Romans chapter fifteen, verse four, for it, Paul says, "For whatever things were written before were written for our learning." We can learn things that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now that one is a little bit, a little bit more tricky, I guess. When you're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul just comes right out and he says, these things were examples. These people made mistakes. You ought to be able to learn from their mistake. But now here in Romans 15, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, what is it about a study of the Old Testament that can give us patience and comfort that leads to hope? That's an interesting question. It's kind of an interesting turn of phrase that he uses there. Uh, and, and things like that usually uh, spark a, a bit of curiosity in me. It's like, well, what exactly did he mean by that? Uh, you know, when you think about God and you think about his attributes, what do you normally think of? You know, when you're thinking of things that characterize God, what do you think of? Well, he's all powerful. That's obvious. That's obvious. He's all-loving, that also is obvious. He's everywhere all at once, and he's all-knowing. We know all of those things. But I I don't know about you, but the next thing that usually pops into my head is long-suffering. He's patient. And and for us, that should be a, a really important thing to think about. There are are times when people seem to have the idea that that God is up in heaven with a pair of of giant binoculars watching every move we make, just looking for an excuse to condemn us. You know, he's just waiting for me to make one little mistake so he can say, ah, mark him off the list, He, he did something wrong. And that is not the way it is. God is not that way. If anything, God is giving us every opportunity that he possibly can to be obedient, to be his children. Now, you know, there there are things that God's not going to put up with, and he's not going to force us to do things. He has made us creatures of free will. We have the option to be obedient or not. We can choose the path that we want to follow, and he will let us do that. But he will give us every opportunity. You will not be able to stand before God in the judgment. Nobody will. And be able to to justifiably say to God, you never gave me a chance. I never had an opportunity. You can't blame me because I just didn't have a chance. Nobody's going to be able to say that. You know, you think about this. One of the things that's interesting to me is is when you look at, at the time frame in which God works. Uh, I I love 1 Samuel chapter 15. There are so many lessons there. Uh, Saul, King Saul, has been told uh, by Samuel that that God is going to exercise judgment against the Amalekites, and he wants Saul to go and utterly destroy them. Uh, and, and, I know we've done this before, but when you go through there, one of the things I love is looking at all of the excuses that Saul makes for not doing what he was supposed to do, because you can find people making every one of those excuses today. It's, it's a really good lesson. But when you, when you start backtracking, why did God want the Amalekites utterly destroyed? It's because of what they did all the way back in Exodus chapter 17, when the Israelites left Egypt and they were coming through the, the wilderness, the Amalekites ambushed them. They attacked the rear guard, the people who were the weakest, who were the tiredest. And uh, God said, for what Amalek has done, I will utterly destroy him. And then later when the, uh, the children of Israel were about to go into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says it again when you go into that land remember that God said that he will destroy Amalek for what he did talking about the king of the Amalekites I'll destroy him for what he did and finally when you get to first Samuel chapter 15 when when Saul is the king God has decided that the time is right and when you figure it up it's been about 400 years it has been about 400 years from the time they ambushed the Israelites until God said it's time to punish them. God waited until the time was right. I, I, I heard something uh, not too long ago that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, a, a guy uh, had had left uh, Great Britain and moved to the United States, and he's been here for, I don't know, about 12, 13 years, something like that, and people ask him all the time, say, well, what are some of the big differences between Great Britain and the United States. He said, Well, one of them can be summed up this way In the United States, people think 100 years is a long time. In Britain, we think 100 miles is a long way. When you go to the other country, you find out neither one's true. But we do, we think of 100 years as a long time. Well, it took God 400 years before he decided to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Time doesn't mean anything to God in the sense that we normally think of it. You think about the land promised to Abraham. Abraham was told to leave his city and that he was to wander in a land that God would show him and that that land would eventually be his. In Genesis chapter 15, God restates that promise to Abraham. He says, in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God says, you're going to wander here and you're going to die. And eventually your descendants are going to go into a land and the people there will enslave them. But then eventually in the fourth generation, they'll come back here. It's going to be at least that long, about another 400 years. And why did God say it was going to be that long? Because the Canaanites, the Amorites, were not as wicked as they would be. God is saying when the time is right, when these people have gotten about as bad as they're going to get, that is when I'm going to have your, your people come back, your descendants, and they will drive them out of the land. About 400 years. And that's why <laughs> Peter was able to say, in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, Peter is talking to some people who, who are thinking in human time frames, not in God's time frame. and they're saying, well, where's the promise of his coming? all things continue as they were from the fathers. In other words, you know, Jesus is supposed to be coming back and things just keep going on. Where is he? He must have forgotten. And Peter says, no, he hasn't. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He's giving us opportunities not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance he says it's not a matter of forgetfulness it's a matter of god giving us opportunities he's long-suffering god will put up with a lot and that should be a very comforting thing when you think about it i am not a patient person and there are some things especially that I have very little patience with. And it's, it's people who ought to know better who go ahead and do stupid things anyway. Uh, I have never had any patience with that. And I'm not as patient as I should be with some of them because a lot of the time, I don't, I don't know what all of the circumstances are. You know, I can't say why somebody does something. To me, it may look like it's a, a really dumb thing to do, but to them, it makes perfect sense. And I, I need to be better about that. But a lot of us are like that to an extent. We're not as patient as we ought to be. So we ought to be glad that God does not treat us the same way we sometimes treat others. Because God is patient. And the fact that God is patient and he will give us opportunity after opportunity ought to be uh, one of those things that does give us hope. God is patient. But patience and comfort of the scriptures. What do you mean by comfort? I think there's a lot of things that would probably fall uh, under that heading as far as things that we can find in the Old Testament, but one especially I think is, is what's in mind here, and that is that in the Old Testament people are presented exactly as they were, good points and bad points. Nothing is left out, Now, if you were were going to write about somebody that was a, a big hero of yours, if you were going to write about somebody that you really, really admired, how would you go about it? Would you discuss all of their personal failings, their flaws, their mistakes, along with their good points? Probably not. We would kind of gloss over the bad stuff. We try not to mention that very much. You know, our, our, our heroes are people that we want to think of as being bigger and better than us. So we don't like to talk about their weak points. And that sometimes leads people to think, you know, I can't be a Christian. I just can't do it. And I've heard people say this from time to time. They say, I can, you know, if, if I can ever get my life straightened out, if, if I can ever get over the bad things that I do, if I can be the kind of person that I need to be, then I'll be a Christian, but not until then. And I tell him, you've got it backwards. You become a Christian, and then you start trying to straighten out your life. You know, that, that is a lifelong endeavor. There is no such thing as a perfect person. We all make mistakes. We do it frequently. And that is a, 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 a problem with some people. Either they think they're not good enough to become a Christian, or once they become a Christian, they worry because they're not perfect. I've heard people say this from time to time. You know, how can I know that I'm going to go to heaven? If somebody were to ask me, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? I'd just have to tell them, I don't know. I hope I am, but I don't know. Why don't you know? Well, there there may be some little thing that I've done, that I don't even know I've done. There may be some little commandment that God has given, and, and I violated it, and I don't know. You know, am I, am I wrong in an area that I don't even know about? Can I say that I'm going to go to heaven when God might bring that up and say, well, you know, you, you, you messed up here. Well, God, I didn't know I did it. Well, it's too bad, you know, that, that, that was the rule. You're not supposed to do that, and you did it. And, and they worry about that. I've heard people uh, bring this up over in James chapter 2 in verse 10. James said, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. And they say, see, right there. He says, if I make one little mistake, it's like I violated the whole law. Well, if you go back and you read the whole context, that is not what James is talking about. What James is talking about is people who will try to excuse something that they've done by saying, well, it's just a minor little detail. And in this particular context, especially, he's talking about uh, giving preferential treatment to people that are rich and ignoring people that are poor. James says, if you think that because that's a little deal that that God's not going to hold you accountable for it, you're mistaken. You can't wash it away, you can't sweep it under the rug, because you think it's just a little thing. So, you know, don't have that mindset. He's not saying that God is looking for excuses to condemn us. And when you think about some of these great characters of faith, Noah. Noah's a great one. God comes and tells Noah, I want you to build an ark, because it's going to rain and flood, something that the world had never seen. And from the way it looks, it says that that for about 120 years, God said he would give them that much time. So Noah's also described as a preacher of righteousness. So he's building an ark, and he's trying to warn people for about 120 years. And you think about doing it in the environment that Noah was doing it. It says that every thought was only evil continually. That's why God was going to destroy them. Now, think about trying to do the right thing, Preach to people who only think evil continually. You know, if you could think of a worse environment to be trying to do the right thing in, I, I, I can't imagine it. You know, that's got to be about the worst possible environment that you can think of. But Noah did it. Built the ark, gathered the animals, goes on the ark, the rest of the world is drowned. Noah walked with God. And then... The flood subsides, Noah lands, Noah becomes a farmer, he plants a vineyard, he makes wine, he gets drunk and passes out in his tent. Noah wasn't a perfect person either, just like us. You think about Abraham. I I have oftentimes thought about Abraham when God tells him to take his son, the son he's been waiting for so very long, and take him to a mountain that God would show him, kill him, and burn him, offer him as a burnt sacrifice. I, I just really have a hard time imagining that I could do that. Abraham arose and went. He went to do what God told him to do. But then later, Abraham is wandering through... And he's afraid people are going to see his beautiful wife and they're going to decide, we're going to take your wife and we're going to kill you and take all the stuff that you own. So he tells Sarah, you know, I'm worried about this. So if anybody says anything about her, you, his wife, tell her you're my sister. He lied because he was afraid. He doesn't do it once, does it twice. Abraham wasn't perfect either. You know, Moses, one of the neat things about Moses is he had patience that I can barely imagine. Can you imagine putting up with a bunch of whining, complaining people who every time a little thing went wrong, they're threatening to stone you to death, and you got to put up with them for 40 years? How in the world did he do that? I don't know. But you look at Exodus chapters 3 and 4 when, when Moses Uh, is having his his talk with God when God's in the burning bush and God tells Moses what he's going to do. I'm going to send you back to Egypt and uh, you are going to represent me to Pharaoh and you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. Moses made every excuse in the book. Don't send me. I can't speak properly. They're not going to believe me. I can't do this. He finally, God answered every single one of these excuses and said, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. And when all of his excuses had been had been finally dealt with, he says, just send somebody else. Anybody else. Just not me. Made every excuse in the book. Later on in Numbers chapter 20, God tells him to speak to the rock, provide water for the, for the people. And Moses is aggravated with him. And he strikes the rock. Didn't do what God told him to do. And he couldn't enter the the promised land because of that. Moses was not perfect. David. David is discussed in more detail in the Old Testament than any other character. We know more about David than we do about anybody else. And David was a man after God's own heart. And David made so many mistakes. David did some terrible things. He did things that I just about guarantee none of you have even thought about doing. I mean, most of us remember about him and and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. He was supposed to be out at the battlefield. That's when kings went to war. Well, he wasn't there. He was back in the capital city wandering around up on the roof when he should have been out with the soldiers, and he sees a woman bathing on her housetop. Instead of turning around, going back inside, he's guilty of lust, commits adultery, finds out she's pregnant. Well, her husband's going to have something to say about that, so he has him killed. Guilty of lust, guilty of adultery, guilty of murder. And some of the things that you read about even before that... There were times when when David lied, did things he should never have done. So how can he be a man after God's own heart? Well, when you get into 2 Samuel chapter 12, when the prophet Nathan comes to him and, and tells David what he did, David, unlike King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, doesn't try to excuse it. He doesn't try to weasel out of it. He doesn't try to say it's somebody else's fault. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. He was willing to admit it. Now, when you think about things like this, you think about the mistakes that Noah made, that Abraham made, that Moses made, that David made. You think about all of those less than perfect people. How is that a comfort? Because it means we don't have to be perfect either. We don't have to be perfect. As a matter of fact, God does not expect us to be perfect. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is the 103rd Psalm. In the 103rd Psalm, beginning in verse 6, it says, "...the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel." The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. God has every right in the world to condemn you the moment you commit a sin. God could say... The first time you ever do anything, you did something wrong, you violated my law, you're condemned, that's it. And he doesn't do that. He has not punished us according to our iniquities, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children... So the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and his place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. God does not treat us the way we deserve to be treated. He's better than that. He treats us a lot better than that. God does not do what he could do. He treats us ways that we we have never, we've never deserved, we've never earned, and never will. Hebrews chapter 4 In verse 15, the Hebrew writer said, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God understands. He knows why we are the way we are. And he he will be forgiving as long as we are willing to say, I've made a mistake. Now, one of the things that is really important to remember, you know, sometimes people can take something like this and they can say, well, you know, if if God is that gracious and merciful and God's that forgiving, I don't have to worry about the stuff I do. You know, that's what a lot of, of denominational people say. God's grace is going to cover it. I've heard church God preachers say from time to time, you know, I could, I could commit every sin in the book right up here, and it wouldn't affect my salvation in the least. Yes, it would. If I willfully sin, I'm in big trouble. God's grace and mercy is offered to those who are willing to say, like David did, I have sinned. You know, when you think about uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, where John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is confession in there? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, why do we have to confess our sins to God? He knows everything. God knows everything I've ever done. So why do I have to go to him in prayer and tell him what I did? He already knows. It's because confessing sin is not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. Because you cannot confess something to God unless you are willing to admit that you did it. And that is the big important point. You admit that you did it. God, I know what I did. I know it was wrong. I'm going to try not to do it again. Help me in that and forgive me. And if you can't do that, then God's not going to forgive you. If you can't confess that you sinned, if you can't admit you made a mistake, God won't forgive you of it. You have to confess it. David said when he was was accused of of adultery and murder, he said, I have sinned. He knew what he did, and he admitted it. I know what I did. So the fact of God's mercy, God's grace, is not a license to sin. Read Romans chapter 6. The apostle Paul talks about that. God's grace is going to cover sin. Well, is that a license to sin? Can I live in sin then? He says, God forbid. No, you can't. Are you going to sin sometimes? Yes, you will. Do you get to just sin and not worry about it? No, you don't. So it's not a license to sin. And here comes the really hard part about the whole thing. If I'm going to expect God to be merciful to me, If I'm going to expect God to forgive me of the things that I do that are wrong, no matter how bad they may be, if I'm going to expect God to do that, I have to do that for other people. That's the hard part. Because I have to treat other people the way I want God to treat me. You get what you give in a lot of different ways. What you give to others, God will give back to you. The, the, the concept of karma, it's a, an Eastern religion thing. The, the idea of karma basically is that you will get back whatever you do in life. You know, the things that you do are eventually going to come back around to you. It, it's, it's a big deal in Eastern religions, but it's also a biblical principle because you find that a lot of the time. God requires that we be merciful. Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Therefore be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. You have to be, be willing to be merciful to other people, just like God is merciful to you. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, James 2.13. If I'm not going to be understanding and patient and merciful toward other people, God will not be understanding and patient and merciful to me. If I want it from God, I've got to be willing to do it for others. Now, that's not to say that if if somebody is unrepentant, if if they've done things to you and they're not in the least bit sorry about it, that you're supposed to forgive them. No, you forgive people who ask for forgiveness, just like God does. But if somebody comes up and says, you know, I know what I did was wrong, I'm sorry for what I did. What can I do to make amends? Then I'm supposed to treat them just like God would treat me if I did the same thing. God, I know what I did was wrong. I'm sorry I did it. What can I do to make it right? If I'll do that before God and I will do it before others, then everything's fine. God will treat me like I treat other people. And that is how we have patience and comfort of the scriptures. God is long suffering toward us and God does not expect us to be perfect. He expects us to try to be, knowing that we're never going to get there, but he doesn't expect us to be. It may be that there's someone here this morning that needs to respond to the Lord's invitation. If you're here and you're not a Christian, God, through his grace and mercy, has given you another opportunity to do that. You could obey, obey the gospel this morning. You could come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the son of God, and you could be baptized to have your sins washed away. Or maybe you're an erring child of God. You've done something that has separated you from God. You can correct that this morning. If it's something that no one else knows about, then go to God in prayer. Confess the sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you, and he's promised to do that. If your sin is public in nature, then your repentance should be public as well so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church. Or it may be that you just need to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing.